Recovery Elevator, episode 251. I just remind myself, you know, the, the other piece of the getting away from the craving is this, the whole poison of this stuff. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Tori. He's 47 years old. He took his last drink on October 9th, 2017. He's from Bainbridge Island, Washington. And in his interview, he talks about how he put the puzzle pieces together and how something clicked at day 14 alcohol-free. It's a fantastic interview. You guys are going to love it. First off, nice job, Ron, from Phoenix, Arizona, for hitting 90 days alcohol-free. So I said to myself, if I hear one more time just how damn cool Australia is, well, I guess I'm just going to go there. And that's what's happening. Recovery elevator, myself, I'm going down under, and we should meet. So if you're in the Australia area within a couple hundred miles or want to hop on a flight to either Sydney or uh, the Brisbane area, we're doing a meetup in Sydney on Saturday, December 14th. We're meeting at the Surf Fish Cafe at Bondi Beach at noon, followed by some additional activities. And another one on the Gold Coast, Friday, December 20th. I do need a head count, so if you'd like to attend, please email info at recoveryelevator.com. And Carrie will get you on the list, as well as more detailed itinerary of where to meet and when. There is no cost to attend this meetup, just accept the cost of your own dinner, meal, or like a surf lesson or something like that. One more thing, we've got a new Cafe RE group launching on January 1st. 2020. We started our last group, Cafe Re Go, last January, and it's full of sobriety rock stars, many of them who haven't touched the booze since. So if you're thinking about taking the plunge into a way better life, then this is a fantastic opportunity to get it started. All right, let's get started here. What happens when a spouse, a loved one, or someone in your relationship quits drinking? So I've had so many requests for this episode, but I kept putting it off because this one is vast. It's deep and it can go in so many different directions. So here it is and I hope it helps. At first I was going to cover some specific scenarios, but as I began to prep for this episode, I realized how wide and delicate this topic is. I mean, there are infinite dynamics when it comes to relationships, alcohol, addiction, and quitting. When a partner quits or can't quit, or when two people in a relationship quit or need to quit, or only one quits and the other keeps drinking. So I'm not going to cover any one scenario in depth too much. If I do, I'll be alienating the other 95% of people who find themselves in this pickle. I went back and looked at several of the emails from listeners requesting this topic, both from problematic and normal drinkers, and all of the emails contain living situations that are completely unique, so I'm going to cover this topic with broader strokes. First off, relationships are tricky. We are not a monogamous species. If we were, things like infidelity and affairs wouldn't exist, but they do. So it's important to keep in mind that relationships that aren't exposed to addiction turmoils also have their equal set of challenges. Okay, it's important to recognize both parties need their respective healing. We've all heard of secondhand smoking. Well, there's this thing called secondhand drinking. And if you're living with, married to, or dating somebody with a drinking problem, most likely you've been burned emotionally and are in need of healing as well. It's estimated that 90 million Americans live with or are in direct contact with someone who struggles with addiction. 
That coupled with the 25 plus million who struggled with addiction makes this the most pressing epidemic of our time, and we're dealing with it right now. I have heard countless stories about what can happen when someone quits drinking in a relationship. I want to be upfront and say there is no clear trajectory or a similar pathway that I can piece together what it looks like when a spouse quits drinking. So here's some of the accounts that I've heard, and we're just going to use the name Tim to simplify this. All right. Tim quit drinking and it saved our marriage. Tim quit drinking and it turns out we have nothing in common and our marriage ended. Tim quit drinking and hangs out with his sober friends 24-7 and left me even more isolated. Tim quit drinking and we were able to salvage the relationship through counseling and time. Tim quit drinking and became even more of an asshole and our marriage ended. Tim would be a dry drunk. Tim quit drinking, got the support he needed, and I was left broken and in deep need of emotional support. Tim quit drinking, he does AA, and I attend Al-Anon. Tim quit drinking, and it didn't solve anything. Here are some more. Tim is trying to quit drinking, and I'm his number one cheerleader. Tim is trying to quit drinking, but I don't think he's trying hard enough. Tim is trying to quit drinking, but at the cost of my happiness. Tim is trying to quit drinking, and his irritability makes me walk on eggshells. Tim is trying to quit drinking, and I'm about out of, hey, Tim, you're doing great cards. Tim is trying to quit drinking, but I've had enough. And then there's scenarios when both parties should probably ditch the booze. Tim quit drinking, and so did I. Tim quit drinking, I didn't want to, and we went separate ways. Tim quit drinking, I tried, but couldn't, so Tim left me. Tim quit drinking, I quit drinking, and we found that alcohol was the glue in the relationship, and without it, we didn't match, so we went separate ways. As you can see, there are endless possibilities of what can happen. But let's take a look at perhaps one of the most common ones. What happens when a spouse with a drinking problem quits? It's nice to believe that once your addicted spouse has stopped drinking, everything will go back to normal. Unfortunately, this is rarely the case. Usually, because your definition of normal is more than a decade old, it's antiquated. More often than not, living with your recovering partner is filled with shifting expectations and demands that can leave both of you feeling disappointed and frustrated with each other. Lewis Wilson, the long-suffering wife of AA's co-founder, Bill Wilson, said that after he quit drinking, something she had always hoped and prayed for, she became disgruntled. She had dreamed of a time he would finally get himself together, but now that he was sober, she became bitterly discontented. She says, It seemed like I saw nothing of the man I tried to help, Lewis said. He was always with his AA cronies who helped him resist alcohol. I guess I was jealous, Lewis admitted, and resentful that these strangers had done for him what I could not. Keep in mind that this is just what Lewis Wilson's experience was. I've heard others where once the alcohol was removed, the core issues in the relationships just went away. So here are some things to keep in mind when someone quits in the relationship. Change will occur. The dynamic of the relationship will shift. As I mentioned in last episode, when we remove alcohol in the relationship, it will solve some issues, but the band-aids will be ripped right off. Problems in the relationship will rise to the surface fast, and they'll need addressing, so be prepared. So here is some advice to the problem drinker in a relationship. Communication is key. Most likely, you're not as good as hiding it as you think you are. Your spouse is fully on board of when you're drinking, when you have been drinking, when you're planning on drinking, etc. So with this, we can practice some harm reduction and communicate to your spouse or whomever 
of what's going on and simply stop lying and be honest with them. That alone is going to mitigate a lot of issues. Another one is ask for help. For some reason, people with drinking problems suck so bad at asking for help. Ask your partner, your spouse, your wife, etc., whomever, ask for help. You're better off as a team. There probably once was a time in your relationship when you two were best friends, and this can be an incredible bonding and team building experience. And you know what? This can be fun. You can set boundaries. You can tell your spouse, hey, look, I know we have a dinner party over the Joneses next Friday, but I'm trying to quit drinking and I don't know if I'll be successful if I go to the dinner party. You can totally do that. Now, if you're trying to quit drinking and your spouse also needs to quit, remember that it's their own journey. You can't change them. All you can do is focus on yourself. So this seems like a good segue into advice for the normal drinkers in the relationship. First off, you can't change them. It's their own journey. Next up, protect yourself and energies. It's also completely acceptable, and I want you to do this, to set up your own boundaries. You can say, hey, Tim, I love you, but X, Y, and Z, not tolerable, not acceptable. If you do them, here's what's going to happen. Totally fine. So I get asked all the time in email, text, Facebook message format, how can I help my spouse or whomever, a family member who's dealing with addiction to alcohol? All you can do is be there for them with loving arms. Again, you can set boundaries, but you need to love them. So Portugal, I talk about this in my book, Alcohol is Shit. Portugal is the first country that is paving the pathway of how to deal with addiction in its country on the macro level. So we can see in America the $40 billion war on drugs, which is basically to incarcerate addiction out of people, has been a $40 billion waste of money. So on the macro level, we are trying to punish addiction out of people. And if we take that strategy and bring it into the household and try to tough love and say, hey, look, if you don't quit drinking, I'm going to X, Y, Z out of fear, it's not going to work. So love your spouse, love whomever, but do it with boundaries and they'll understand that as well. Another thing you can do, you can say, hey, how can I help you in this endeavor? Let them know that you are there to help. Another thing you can do, you can ask for help yourself. Secondhand drinking is a bitch and they don't want to hurt you anymore. You can ask them for help on this journey as well. Some more advice, it's okay to feel hurt. It's okay to feel that you've been lied to or to feel neglected. You've been going through the ringer also. Give yourself permission to feel the feelings and watch out for yourself. Book a massage. Take a day off. You need to put yourself first at times. And the last thing is let the trust build, but over time. And to those normal drinkers who have lived with and supported someone in the addiction process, if you haven't received an apology, then let me say one on our behalf. We're sorry. We're sorry for the emotional roller coasters, the unpredictability, the projecting, the lack of presence, the blaming, and not being there physically, emotionally, and spiritually in the relationship. Yes, we're sorry. And one more thing, we want to say thank you for sticking with us and seeing the overall good inside of us, even though we were too hungover on the weekend to do the honey to-do list, or worse. So I'm going to say it again on our behalf, thank you. So guys, this was a difficult topic to cover. In fact, one of the hardest, but it's important to keep in mind, whatever happens, it's all happening for your benefit. Do your best to have acceptance of whatever happens because the unknown, which is what we're hearing more and more of on this podcast is scary, 
but that's where wholeness resides. It's unknown of what will happen when a spouse quits drinking or both parties quit drinking, but don't you want to find out? Because you've most likely got a good idea of what's on the horizon if change isn't made. I can tell you, it's more of the same, but heavier. And before we hear from Tori, let's hear from today's sponsor, Skillshare. Getting out of the rut and staying creative is easier said than done, especially with a busy schedule. Maybe you want to get back into an old passion or learn something new. Skillshare is an online learning community for the creator and all of us. They have thousands of classes in photography and creative writing to design, productivity, and more. Their classes are on demand, so you can learn at your own pace. Get inspired, join a class, and create something you'll love. As I've mentioned, I'm learning how to make the music for the meditations I'm creating, and Skillshare has music and music production classes. And I recently took an awesome course called Learn How to Mix Music with Young Guru. Guys, creativity is key to departing from an addiction, and Skillshare has tons of ways to get creative. I like Skillshare because the classes are fun. And just for my audience, on Skillshare, get two months free when you sign up at Skillshare.com forward slash elevator. That's two whole months of unlimited access to thousands of free classes at Skillshare.com forward slash elevator. Again, that's Skillshare.com forward slash elevator. Tori, how are you? Doing great, Paul. Yeah, Tori. I'm glad to have you on the podcast. I'm excited to hear more about your story. Um, let's get right into this, Tori. When was your last drink? Last drink was October 9th, 2017. Hell yes, brother. How's it feel? You know, it feels really good. Every day, as the, the days tick by, every day gives me a little more strength to, to get another sober day. And glad to be in this journey, and, and you know, I, just, I, I, I can't wait to learn more every day. It's, it's been wonderful. And before we learn about you personally and your journey, was there a moment where you didn't think you could do this, or you didn't think you could get two years, more than two years away from the booze? Definitely. A lot of those, uh, lot of those moments. Um, you know, I knew there was a, a, an issue, uh, of many, well, a few years before I actually stopped drinking, but the moderation, those kinds of things, those fell apart. Yeah, so I really, yeah, I was pretty skeptical on this was actually going to be a almost two year sobriety stretch. Yeah. And, and listeners, Tori and I got a big thing in common and I imagine you all can resonate with this is I also had a moment, a bunch of those in 2014, several of those when I was in Spain opening the bar where I didn't think I can do this. But hey, here we are now. Tori's got over two years away from the booze. Uh, I just hit five years a little while ago, so we can do this. And uh, yeah, let's dive into this, Tori. Give listeners a little background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun, Tori? Yeah, well, I moved out to Washington State. Uh, from Wisconsin, so that was back in 92, been in Washington State more or less uh, since then, and, you know, I have uh, two kids, one uh, in high school and one in uh, middle school, been married since 2000 uh, to a wonderful wife, you know, it's, uh, let's see, fun, you know, I'm still working on the fun thing, I spent so much time outside of work making sure that there was always beer or drinks lined up that Wherever I was, it seemed like I, and now I have to replace that time with other things. So I'm taking this time now to finish a lot of projects that I'd started. I like fabricating. So I have lots of 
parts of things laying around, mostly marine salvage stuff. But I like making stuff. I just got done making a outdoor brick oven. That, that was quite a task. So I, that's my release right now, my fun, my fun thing, and along with going, being with the kids, being with my wife and kids, you know, in the evening and, you know, into the early hours of night with school functions and things like that, that I used to avoid. I really, I look at that stuff as being, being a lot of fun now. And I used to avoid it because that was drinking time. There you go. And before I hit record, listeners, Tori is 47, right? Yeah. Correct. And Tori, that's a similar narrative we've heard on this podcast um, within the first three minutes. Uh, I believe it's Lauren who I interviewed before last Monday. She said the same thing. She says, well, fun. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, and for me, Tori, the first couple of years, boredom was a was a part of my journey, right? It was a part of the story. It was difficult to fill the free time, the void um, that alcohol was no longer there to fill. And I heard a quote one time. Uh, boredom is the energy it takes to to block creativity, right? And what the hell does that mean? But it, it, boredom, the good news is boredom is no longer part of my journey. In fact, I signed up for singing lessons. I had my second singing lesson yesterday because why the hell not? Because why not? And something that I'm doing now, uh, I love doing retreats. I'm going on a, a meditation cruise with Dr. Joe Dispenza. I leave this Saturday to Ensign, Italy. We go to France, we go to Spain, and then back to Italy. This is what I like to do for fun. I love connecting with others who are on a similar journey, learning new things, new techniques, new uh, new methods of how to ditch the booze, etc. That's been a lot of fun these last couple of years of my life. Or A, I love to travel, and I can travel and meet other like-minded individuals, um, attend retreats. It's just anything is possible in a life without a booze. So, so Tori, give listeners a little background about yourself with your drinking. How much did you drink? When did you first realize it was a problem? Did you ever attempt to moderate? I think earlier you even said some of those moderation techniques didn't work. Did you have a rock bottom moment on October 9th, 2017? I'm excited to hear your story. Well, yeah. Well, thanks for letting me let me tell the story. Yeah, I guess you know, I grew up in a small Wisconsin town where you hit hit the high school age or the high school years and you know, you drank on Friday and Saturday night and that's what you did. I didn't know anything else really. My my parents didn't drink at home, but you know, everybody around me did. Uh, all my friends, all my older friends and my brother's friends, everybody just drank Friday and Saturday night. So that's, you know, the binge drinking idea where you get off work and head to the gravel pit or to the end of the cornfield or you know, in the wintertime, it was go have a kegger out at the at the ice shack fishing all night or fishing for two nights on the frozen lake and, and drinking the whole time. But went from that to my Coast Guard years, which, you know, was kind of like anybody else that went to college or into the military. That first four years, the early 20s was, again, just more of the binge drinking idea. I was lucky enough to be on an icebreaker stationed out of Seattle, but we were never there, really. We were always underway. So, you spend 30 to 40 some days underway on a ship. You pull into some place like Sydney, Australia with a few paychecks in the bank and three days off. And you saw nothing but the bottom of a beer glass and the inside walls of a tavern. Sure. And that's the way it went for two years. Anytime you'd hit dry land, you'd find the local tavern or the closest convenience store, no matter where you were, what country we were in and, and uh, began drinking until you got underway again. And that even held true in Antarctica. There were three bars in Antarctica, believe it or not. So as soon as we'd get a little bit of ice liberty, we called it down there, you'd head to the AC Ducey Club and <laughs> knock back a, a whole bunch of Budweiser's. So 
came out of those years, uh, got out of the Coast Guard, kind of went to work in the maritime field, and there it was a, a lot of drinking out, off work, you know, a pretty pretty good crowd of guys that I worked with. Uh, we all did our job very well, but when it was when we were off work, it was drinking time, and that's, I guess, really kind of where it started, the daily drinking, and didn't really pay attention to it then, but it slowly progressed. So from the mid-90s, really up until, you know, about, well, we, we easily through the 90s, but uh, up until about 2010, it just maintained the, the daily drinking. The very few days, probably count them on one hand, that I didn't drink between the mid-90s and up till about, like I say, 2010. So, so Tori, from mid nineties um, to 2010, you're mentioning you can only count on one hand with days you didn't drink. And you heard your word. I think I heard the word progression earlier. Was there a gradual ramp up over the, that 15 year period? Exactly. You know, you always hear you build your tolerance, but it comes on kind of slow and you don't really notice it that it goes from two tall boys after work to three. And then the next thing you know, it's, you know, it was a six pack for me and, you know, then the drinking started taking its toll. So I thought, well, the beer is making me feel, feel like shit. So switch gears and go to vodka or once that kind of ran its course, go to, oh, all right, I'll drink wine because this is healthy. And so they say in the media, and, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, is it, you know, <laughs> do you know well, something I don't you know, Tori? <laughs> I tell you, you know, you hear more and more about how red wine is going to save our soul, but so, you know, you keep switching gears and trying the next best thing, and I, I was feeling pretty cruddy. Get, I was just sick, you know. I was not feeling good, didn't feel like eating, I had lots of appetite. So it was a, a slow, just steady progression, like you say, up to where it was. I knew it was an issue, and there wasn't the moderation wasn't working, and that's kind of when I just realized, all right, I, how long is this going to last? Where Who's going to call me out on this? Because... You know, I wasn't in the frame of mind to call myself out on it. And Tori, real, real quick, it's uh, with the wine thing, it's the polyphenols in the skin of the grape that are healthy for you. So listeners, if you want to get the health benefits of polyphenols and grape, just uh, eat grapes or grape juice. <laughs> Number two, you even said it. You said you didn't notice it, and you, you're recognizing there were physical symptoms. So you switched to wine, and you left the beer, switched to wine, and uh, I think the hard alcohol or something else you said. But then in 2010, yep. it sounds like there's a culmination there's kind of a, a climactic point you're reaching when you said, oh, shit, like I can't moderate, I can't switch. What happened then? Describe that moment when you realized there's not a different type of alcohol to switch to. I'm not feeling physically any better. What next? What next? You know, like I wasn't going to I wasn't going to make myself stop. So it needed to you know, come from some outside sources. And, you know, that's my wife started bringing it up that, you know, you know, it's Wednesday, you know, it's like your third cocktail and. And I would go, yeah, you know, making dinner. So this is what we got to do. So it was starting to be talked about. And then I noticed that it was being noticed. I started thinking, you know, then it was like, man, my kids, they've probably never seen me without a drink in my hand because they're not at work with me. And that's about the only time I wasn't drinking. And I started putting this whole puzzle together around, wow, you know, it, when did it get this far? And then I start listening to my wife. She didn't bring it up a lot. It wasn't a nagging thing at all. It was a you know, just the fact that she noticed. And then it started to be where, all right, well, I'll put a bottle out by the workbench in the, in the little shop I have, and then I can pour drinks out there and she won't know. Well, all right, here I am hiding things. And then that's when I kind of, 
I really needed some, some advice and tried to really moderate, right? I was only going to drink if I was out of town on a job. Never, I tried to not drink at home, you know, and that lasted maybe two and a half weeks. And I know it didn't last three weeks. And then it just ramped up from there. And I it, I took off like, you know, a rocket ship on steam. And that's, I, I really, I could see it going down a pretty dark tunnel, probably about 2015, the depression, you know, that, that whole feeling of like, Jesus, you know, how, how am I going to pull these reins back? And it, it just wasn't working. I wasn't going to be able to do it myself. And it was getting worse. And the spiral had started really the waking up so hungover that I'd have to call in sick or avoid certain things at work because I just, there was, I couldn't physically do it. I was just that hungover and the feeling sick and the feeling tired got so bad that uh, the connection with family right about then was starting to really dwindle. You know, it was like, we were, mm. I was kind of avoiding it. I know my wife was avoiding me because it was like, we don't want this elephant in the room to, to have to be really dragged out. And it came down to that. And, and Tori, I want to drill a little bit deeper into something you said earlier. You said, I wasn't going to make myself stop. You needed outside sources. Now, this is the part of anybody's journey that I find so fascinating. In fact, in episode 228, I talk about how awareness, and once we set the intention to quit, then the outside sources will align to recognize this internal decoration. And you just said your wife noticed. People outside were starting to notice. The emotional discomfort was starting to rise. And so just, just a question, when you realized you weren't going to make yourself stop, and it sounds like your conscious and unconscious mind realized that at the same time, did you start, was it about that time when you started to see the outside sources align to help you achieve this goal? That's exactly how the puzzle came together. It was me knowing there was an issue. I've only been able to fix things. It's what I do. And I couldn't fix this. I couldn't do it by myself. So I needed to start listening. Excuse me. Tori, you're doing awesome, man. You're doing great. This stuff sometimes when it comes out, it uh, it just comes out, and uh, sometimes tears come with it, brother. You're doing you're doing great. Oh, thanks. I needed to start listening to the people around me, and these people around me were all pretty smart. <laughs> you know, I respected them, and you know, in a working environment, in a family environment, and a professional environment. And you know, my my wife made an appointment for us to go talk to a counselor that she had seen before that knew some things about addiction and that was the day I knew it was this was the big talk I knew it was coming and I needed it and we sat in her office up on Capitol Hill in Seattle and I realized man this is it you know I'm a drunk and when was that talk Tori October 9th 2017 okay gotcha that was it and it sounds like you said you're you're surrounded by smart people and I'm going to take that one step further and say, it sounds like you're surrounded by loving, supportive, and encouraging people. And I sometimes forget this when podcasting, recording this, recording these episodes, that we are supported by several thousand of some of the most loving and supporting individuals who are listening. So sometimes, you know, we record this and it comes out at a later date, but we both need to realize, you and me both, that we are both supported on this journey. We're both putting ourselves out there right now. And the listener who is listening right there, right now, and sometimes they're in difficult spots, they're also holding a space for, for you and I, Tori. Um, so just imagine that as we're moving forward. They're right there with us, even though this is recorded at a previous date. They're right there with us right now. And I've met many of you in person, including yourself, Tori. 
Uh, and this is the most charismatic, loving, joyful, courageous audience you are ever going to speak in front of. And that's what we're doing. But they're holding the space for us and they're so supportive. So Tori, you are kicking major ass right now. And, and how did it feel on that conversation October 9th? It sounds like the intention you set in 2010, which was you knew you weren't going to make yourself stop. You needed the outside support, that outside source. It came to a head on October 9th, seven years later. Talk to us about that day. Yeah, that's when I, I knew the, where I could go get the, a little bit of support. And I knew that outside community of AA and, and programs like that. So I, don't, I didn't go to an AA meeting that first couple days, but that, I started listening to the podcast, and that's where I found Recovery Elevator. I was still traveling a ton at work for work. And as soon as I'd have to go on a long drive or I was out of town, I would just, I would binge listen to the podcast. And, you know, it was, it was all making sense to me. And then I heard Annie Grace on your podcast. And I think the next day I went and found This Naked Mind. Great book. And read it. And it, that's where it came together for me was where she put it in the idea that this stuff is poison, that it's just bad stuff. And I was a health and safety person at work. So I would have to write safety plans for these work crews to go into hazardous situations. Well, I broke this down to where I started looking at all the ingredients in alcohol or alcohol, ethyl alcohol. And I looked in my, my, one of my resources at work was a NIOSH pocket guide to chemicals. And I flipped to page 132 and I, and I look at ethyl alcohol and I start reading about all of the exposure issues and you know it, it's just amazing that this is that this is legal i put this right up there after i did this little bit of research through my work stuff you know this is as toxic as you know long-term exposure to benzene things like that that yeah you're not going to get cancer from benzene after one exposure but repeated exposures and it's going to make you sick well it it completely made sense to me so after i read this naked mind i put this chemical compound research in in my own wheelhouse and then i just took off with with more books and it was let's learn about this and you know why why does this why does this happen to us why is it progressive how did this sneak up on me and in that journey i don't think i'll ever end it's i i really i keep looking for more answers and and i don't think i'll ever find them all but i certainly am glad that i have the opportunity to be where i'm at and look at this last almost two years, two years of sobriety to uh, realize that you know, I'm not sacrificing anything. I, I just happened to be one of the lucky ones that had a, a support group around me that showed me where the puzzle was and I had to put it together. And, and, and I, and damn it, I did it. And, and that, that's where I'm at now. I, I can't get enough of the knowledge, you know, it's just let's grow and keep the puzzle on the table. Yeah, and listeners, next time you fill up your gas tank at a gas station, read some of the labels. And so alcohol is ethanol with a couple additives added to it to make it palatable and safe for human beings, but not much. Um, and you're basically putting ethanol. It'll fuel your car as a fuel source, but it, 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 it can do some major damage to the human body and mind. And in, in South America and Bolivia and Peru, there's an alcohol called metalico, which is pure ethanol with like one of the two additives that can make it somewhat palatable. And it's, it goes for like 75 cents, like a half gallon of it, but it's made for heavy machinery, but the locals drink it. For 75 cents, you can get drunk for like a couple months, and it does some major damage. That's right. Alcohol is ethanol. It's pure shit. Somebody should write a book about that titled Alcohol is... Oh, wait a second. Just did it. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> and what you said earlier, I love it. You said, look, I just want to, I'm not, I don't, I don't think I'm ever going to have all the answers and you nailed it Tori. you won't, there is no top of the mountain and neither will I by design. This is how it's built. We can always uncover something else. But then that brings us back to the now we need to reach a moment where we're, we're happy, content and joyful in this moment. But let's back it up to October 9th. Did you reach a moment or a tipping point? And I talk about this in episode, I think it's 208 or 209. It's where the energies, one of them is the addiction and one of them is the will, the desire, the intention, the why to quit. It reaches like this critical mass where the momentum to quit is bigger than the momentum of the addiction. Did you reach that on October 9th? And sometimes it's like, where the hell do I go now? But it's also liberating. When was that feeling of like, holy shit, I think I might be able to do this. Yeah, I remember it pretty clearly. Uh, it wasn't October 9th, and it wasn't the first couple of days. It was about day 14 or 15. I was on a work trip in, out in central Washington State, and uh, I, I was looking for an AA meeting because this was one of my first trips out of town after after beginning the, the sobriety thing. And I went to an AA meeting, and kind of a small ranch town out in the middle of Washington. And it was a lot different than my home group. A couple of people had just came out of like a major detox. They were speaking a, a language I didn't really get, but the, it was the, that brotherhood or that, you know, that community of eight of us or 10 of us in this room together, all on the same page of sobriety. That's when I felt it. That's when I realized like, you know, these aren't my, aren't my normal peeps. They're all new faces. They all have backgrounds that I don't really know. And and we got one thing in common here, and we're all going to be sober, at least through this meeting. And, you know, that's when it clicked. And that's when I really embraced this. You know, like, I didn't stick with AA, but I, I still go. You know, I haven't been in a couple of weeks now. But I, I really like that part of of it, being able to walk in and sit down with these people. And we're all on the same page. And it brings me back to that that two weeks in the sobriety that being out of town and going to an AA meeting and just realizing, man, this is it. We're, we're all in this together and I could speak sobriety lingo with these people now. And so that's when it clicked for me was, you know, about day 14 or 15 into it. Then. And to where I want to cover that a little more, uh, earlier you said, you know, knowledge, you just wanted to read all these books, which that's how it's human nature. When we begin this journey, we lean into knowledge that, okay, no worries, because usually any other problem we face on the Western hemisphere or on the globe, knowledge can solve that problem. This one's a little different. And I like how you connected the dots because on day 14, you're like, oh, this is, this is how it goes. This is the action I need to take. The reason why, um, you know, and I'll be, I'll be straight up honest with you, reading a book like Annie Grace's This Naked Mind, including Alcohol is Shit, in your room by yourself, it's going to be a great start. It's not quite going to connect the dots later on down the road. The reason why is you've been trying to think yourself out of this dilemma well before you picked up alcohol or shit or other quit lit literature. And the mind is trying to solve a question about the mind, which it simply cannot do. And in the short term, the mind's answer to solving this question of this intense internal pain, which is in this moment, it always comes up with alcohol. Then it comes up with reasons or ways to moderate, ways to switch liquors and switch things, etc. And so it's difficult to think yourself out of this problem. In fact, willpower, and I read an article the other day that willpower isn't even really a thing, but that's how we start, right? Um, but it sounds like day 14, you realized, okay, I need a community. I need to meet with other people and Tori, you're, you're walking this walk perfectly. I met, I had the pleasure of meeting you in person at the Bozeman retreat, 
But before we cover that experience, bridge the gap from October 9th, those two weeks after, and what were, what were some of the challenges you faced and what were some of the lessons you learned and resources that you implemented along your journey and how you did it? Yeah, well, still worked with a lot of people that drank quite heavily. So that was my first hurdle was avoiding them and, you know, staying away from the alcohol. But, you know, I knew I wasn't going to be able to hide from it. You can't get away from it. So it, it needed to be, you know, psyching myself up when I'd go to these, you know, after work things or seeing people after work. It was like, all right, I'm not going to drink. And, I'm you know, if when it comes to it, if I need to go outside and walk around the block, that's what I'm going to do instead of ordering a drink. So I, there was a lot of that, you know make a presence, you know, make myself, you know, get into a couple conversations that were at these functions and then leave, you know, it was, you know, just, all right, I'm done for the day and had other obligations to go do that, that were more important than drinking. So I tried to make sure I, I was doing that. I tried to make my, make sure uh, that I had things to do in the evening, make sure I could go pick up the kids from a school function or take them somewhere where before I would rely on somebody else, to, you know, my wife, or to to do the driving because after about five o'clock, you know, that was that was prime prime six pack time, and I wasn't going to drive anywhere. So I made sure I had had reasons to not drink and and really hold the cards to it and work this work through you know those steps that way. I got the my home group or AA group uh, where I live. I was going uh, once or twice a week religiously for quite a while just to feel that community and, you know, like say touch base with people. And, and, you know, I didn't always share, you know, I wasn't, I listened a lot and was able to connect a lot of dots and figure out, all right, this is it, man. This is me making, making steps through this journey. And yeah, I, you know, I get kind of caught up in, in the past, I guess. And I realized it wasn't the drinking didn't need to define me that, you know, I was always the guy with a beer in my hand, but I, I, that changed it. That wasn't going to be me anymore. That it didn't define me. That wasn't where I wanted to be. That wasn't, that wasn't making me happy. It wasn't making me feel good. And I, I needed to, you know, avoid that. It wasn't the defining identity. You know, it wasn't, that wasn't me. And I had to change gears and I did. And I, I love every day of it. So. Was there a time where you had an intense craving in these last two years where you thought about drinking? Definitely. Yep. And, uh, when I get the when I get this idea, man, it sure would be nice to have a cold beer after mowing the lawn. It's like, you know, it never, it, well, I don't remember the day that it ever stopped at one. I'm sure there was a day somewhere between 17 and 47 that I had one beer, but I don't remember that day. It never stopped at one. So if I thought I could have one beer after mowing the lawn or after a long day at work or a stressful situation where I could go in and just knock the edge off with a a quick vodka tonic it's not going to stop there and i know it it's that that writing is on the wall it'll be there forever you know it's not going to stop at once so i follow that first drink i work myself through that craving doing that it's break it down and sometimes it it keeps nagging at you or nagging in my the back of my mind that um you could do it you could only have one but i you know you just i that's where this knowledge comes in and this base of you know community of the, all the people in cafe or uh, recovery elevator and you know the that group you just think about all these people that are going through the same thing and that community it keeps me away from from actually uh, acting on those cravings 
So as I mentioned earlier, we can't think ourselves out of this. However, you do have 30 years of data and I have the same data. All we got to do is think about did, how many times have I had just one and stopped? Um, we actually can think ourselves through some of those intense cravings because the data, there's a backlog of it there that says, you know what? There's a slim chance that's going to happen. I love how you said it. That, that's called following the drink, playing the tape forward. You got a pretty good idea of what's going to happen despite the mind of the addiction, which we can personify in a different voice. Mine's named Gary, despite what that voice tells us. And, and here's the good thing is Gary in the first two years of this podcast, you heard the name Gary, like every other episode, Gary has been fairly quiet these last couple of years. I don't really get those nagging polls. In fact, I mean, I haven't got one in the last two or three years. Let's just put it that way. It's a beautiful thing. And, and where are these cravings? Where are you at with these cravings? You know, it's, I had one like not long ago. I remember driving home from work thinking, you know, boy, it'd be cool to just stop in and have one. It's a beautiful day and watch the sailboats out on the water and have a cold drink. But they're getting fewer, fewer and farther uh, between now. It's, you know, if I had to put a number on it, I'd, I'd maybe think about about it once a week. But it's, I don't even think it's that often, to tell you the truth. It's, they come and go pretty quick for me. I just remind myself, you know, the, the other piece of the getting away from the craving is this the whole poison of this stuff. You know, I, I like, I don't eat MSG, you know, because it, it can make me sick, <laughs> you know? And so I, I don't want to put this ethanol in my body anymore. I, I had enough. I'm lucky that it didn't take me down a really, really shitty path. I had enough and anymore could be, be the last one, you know, it's, that's the way I look at it. It's, it, I've had enough poison and uh, no more. And Tori, you mentioned you started listening to the podcast about two years ago. Is that what you said? Yeah, right right after I got sober. So I could very well, the first podcast I listened to could have been October 11th, uh, 2017. It was pretty quick. I found Recovery Elevator and I just, I latched onto it and the, this is exactly what I needed. The, you know, just putting the puzzle together with, uh, I could relate to 99% of the people on here that you interviewed in those early early ones it was like wow this is me you know like i remember one in particular i remember that somebody asked this guy how much he made how much his pay i was on his paycheck every every time he got paid and he didn't know they asked him how much beer and what kind and where it was in his house and he named it three different kinds of beer two different kinds of alcohol and exactly how much <laughs> and that's exactly where i was i could tell you you know how much how many mini airplane bottles of vodka were sitting in my tool cabinet I could tell you exactly what was in the cupboard next to the refrigerator. I had it figured out to where, you know, it was, I, you had to have it for the next day. And if you couldn't get out to go get it, you had a ration, you know, so I, I had this all figured out. And that right there has made so much sense to me when that guy said, I don't know how much my paycheck is, but I, I know exactly where the booze is and how much. Yeah, Tori, I've had a couple of interviewees reference that line. I actually included that quote. I went back to it, that interview, and put it in my book. Uh, I love yeah. it. And when you said, y'all, you heard my story, 99% of the people, uh, w w it was me, right? But like the majority, I mean, it's like a 60-40 split. Most of them are female, right? And so what that tells me, you're focusing on the similarities and not the differences. You're ready. And listeners, beware. Here's a warning to you guys right now, or just keep this in the back of your head. You might be listening to this podcast today, and then you might meet myself in person or even Tori at a future recovery elevator retreat, meetup, live event, sober travel itinerary. 
years down the road. Now, did you think when you first started listening to the podcast after, after or around October 9th that you'd come to a, a recovery retreat in Bozeman, Montana about two years later? No, it, that was definitely way too, way, way outside my comfort zone. Yeah, I never anticipated, never thought I would do anything like that. So glad it happened. So glad I got out of my comfort zone. Wonderful, spiritual. Yeah, it was just awesome. Can't say enough about it. Yeah, that was a, that was a fun that was a fun weekend. I was looking at the group photo, which is hung up uh, right when I come in the office. I see it. And this morning, I'm looking at the front of the 70-something people in the photo. There's a beautiful waterfall in the background. And there is Tori, front and frickin' center, huge smile on his face. Uh, I was like, yes, I got to talk to that guy today. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, I was, you know, I, I'm usually the guy in the back. I don't know how that ended up with me in the front of that picture. But <laughs> well, you were right where yeah, you were supposed I, to be. Glad I could represent. Yeah, and one more question before we hit the rapid fire round, um, talk to us more about um, when you said this alcohol, this 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 part of my life where alcohol, the addiction, no longer defines me. How did it feel when you reached that conclusion? And just tell us more about that. You know, I felt like I could be me again. You know, I I I do remember days that you know, like in my late teens, not drinking, and it, I and even I guess into my twenties, I remember you know where the alcohol really hadn't taken over yet. That you know, I just, re- I was different. And I, re- now I feel like, yeah, this is the true me. You know, I can be myself. I'm not avoiding conversations at certain times of the day because I got alcohol on my breath. I feel like me that it is a, just a huge weight off off my back and off my shoulders to know that the people that I deal with on a daily basis have accepted me. You know, I, I can have relationships now, work personal, professional, and, and not have to feel like I'm you know, somebody else. You're, or, you know, the drinking buddy, you know, that it's, I feel like Tori again, and it, it's awesome. So Tori, I went through that same thing, but it was always conditional with drinking. So I feel like I can be me with a six pack of beer. I'm going to be me again with two 40 ounces of King Cobra, whatever. But you're right. There was a time when I was a kid in high school and middle school where I could just be me. Um, and that didn't come back day one of an alcohol free life. And it sounds like it didn't come back for you either, but I reached a moment, which this is like the Holy grail type of stuff where we want to move forward to this is two things. You can be me, you can be yourself without the external substance, alcohol. And the second one, which will come back is you feel like you can do anything you want in life. There are no more parameters, all the, the barriers, the fences, the boundaries, they're lifted. How has that all felt for you? Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, it's just liberating, you know, this whole journey now, I'd say up, I really enjoyed my pink cloud area or that time frame where I felt like just skipping down the sidewalk, screaming, I'm sober, I'm sober. And, you know, I'd get hugs as, as, as I skipped down the sidewalks for being sober. But after that first year, then I really felt like, all right, this is, this this is going to be awesome. You know, this is where, you know, this is, I started thinking clearly, I guess is what happened. And then I start looking at all these projects and why did I bring, you know, all these old boat parts home off these jobs I'd come home from and, you know, parts of old train cars and from train wrecks. And what am I going to do with this? Well, now I got a plan before it just looked like, you know, a junkyard and looked like Sanford and son in my driveway. But now it's starting to come together. Now there's a, a method of the madness. And I feel like now I can be creative where before I was just hoarding stuff to feel good about myself, I guess. 
don't know if that makes any sense at all, but yeah, I just it, it feels liberating now. That it's just it's me, and I don't have to have the booze to to replace anything. Yeah, I love it. And Tori, we've reached the rapid fire round. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Number one, what's a light bulb moment you've had on this journey? Uh, the light bulb moment was, uh, you know, it happened a little bit actually before I got sober, but I, I ended up having this panic attack. I ended up in the ER room with my wife, and I had to be real honest with the doctor when he said, how much do you drink? My wife was looking at me, and I had to, I had to be honest. You know, she knew uh, that I was knocking back a six-pack of tall boys or a half a bottle of vodka every day, and the light bulb moment went on right there that, all right, this is it. You got to... There's got to be a, a way out of this, but I was honest with the doctor, and he said, "You know what? You should probably start, you should probably quit drinking." And then he left the room, and it was that he wasn't there to make any friends. He was there to hopefully get me to feel better, and uh, that was my light bulb moment when I, I kind of knew I better start listening to somebody and put a puzzle together, put this puzzle together. Tori, I found myself in an emergency room in Spain having a panic attack, and the doctor asked me, how much do you drink? And I was honest with him for the first time with the medical physician. He looked at me, gave me a Valium, a benzodiazepine, and said, you need to quit drinking. <laughs> Same thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, next, next question. What is a memorable moment a life without alcohol has provided you? Anytime I can go on vacation with the family, the wife and kids, because it's just We've gone on a few now, um, even if they're just extended weekends, to where it, I'm present with them. It's not they're around and I'm trying to you know, give the kids 20 bucks, tell them to go to the, the video arcade or the, the candy shop or go find something to do so I can go knock back a couple beers and then I'll meet you in an hour. And that's the way it used to be. Now it's, let's go ride a bike. Let's go for a walk on the beach. Let's you know fly a kite. Let's go do these things and we're all together. And I'm not thinking about, you know, it's four o'clock. We got to go get, we got to get beer. That doesn't even enter into the equation anymore. So that, that's an awesome feeling. And what's your favorite alcohol-free drink? Definitely LaCroix, but, you know, I, I'll drink any sparkling water. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't have to be LaCroix, but I uh, prefer the grapefruit LaCroix. There you go. What are some of your favorite resources? Well, Cafe RE or, you know, uh, Recovery Elevator, this, this group has been awesome. You know, the, the AA community where I live is pretty small, tight-knit. They're, they're definitely a resource and uh, just reading more and more. Uh, I've reached out now. I started listening to the, or watching some stuff on YouTube, you know, so just really more knowledge about addiction. And that's, you know, it, it would pass by. On my end, it, it, booze was the easiest thing to get a hold of, so that's where I was. That was the easiest thing for me to get. So I look at this as an addiction more than just that I'm an alcoholic. If I, if I could have bought 50 gallons of airplane glue, I'd have probably been sniffing that, but <laughs> it was easier to get a hold of the booze. So I just drank that every day. So I, you know, more, more knowledge and more eating. And that's, that's where my resources come from. And I, the recovery elevator has been awesome. Well, thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of it. And what's on your bucket list in an alcohol-free life? Well, finishing some major yard art that I have started. And the biggest piece is a 42-foot sailboat mast. That's going to be the centerpiece. But once I finish this, uh, this yard art, it, it'll be pretty epic in my mind. Now, everybody else has <laughs> said it, they're probably not going to say the same thing. But, yeah, so that's my bucket list is they just, you know, clean up, get rid of some stuff. <laughs> right now, I, you know, and really enjoy time with my kids. You know, my daughter's in high school. She'll go off to college soon, and 
you know, just really enjoy this because I feel like I missed a lot of their childhood, even though I was around. I just, you know, I, I kind of miss a big chunk of that. So being with family. There you go. Definitely. Is a, and yeah. what parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners, Tori? Yeah. You know, dig deep. If you, you think you have a problem, you're, if you're asking yourself, you probably do. And, you know, start listening to the people that are around you because most likely they're going to see it with a different set of eyes and listen to them and, and look for guidance and ask for help. Can't do it alone. And you need a little community and you, you need that backbone of people around you. So I know we've all heard it before, but if I can do it, anybody can. Tori, before we depart, give listeners your own. You might need to ditch the booze if line. Yeah, there's a couple that I could put in there, but uh, it was probably the night of the uh, of October 9th, actually. A friend of mine had years ago given me a bottle of vodka with a bunch of peppercorns in it as peppered vodka. It was the last alcohol in the house. And I, it, was, it wasn't it was going to go down the drain. It was I was going to drink it, and that was the... The night before I got sober, I drank a half a bottle of peppercorn vodka, sipped it because it was so hot with pepper, um, but I just, I had to drink it. It was, so if you're drinking homemade peppercorn vodka as the last booze in the house, you know, you you need to ditch the booze. I love it, Tori. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure meeting you in person. You're doing awesome stuff. Well, thank you, Paul. And likewise, that was uh, an, an awesome a uh, group of people there that you assembled in Bozeman. And, uh, I'll always remember it. And, you know, it's a beautiful place. So thank you. And thank you for the recovery elevator. Thank you, Tori. Right now it is December 9th. If you're feeling the itch, the urge to get that accountability on the calendar and go to Southeast Asia, hang out, build a recovery network and find out how to ditch the life, the old self with you that contained alcohol and build that happy life without it. Well, join us on the Recovery Elevator Asia Adventure Sober Travel Alcohol-Free Trip taking place this January to 31st. Go to recoveryelevator.com for full itinerary and details. One more thing. I am absolutely loving making these meditations. I've made several of them at the moment working on a meditation course. Meditations will be bigger parts of the retreats moving forward. And uh, here's a snippet. There might be live performances of these meditations at the retreats. So we'll be meditating and watching the band or the group perform them live. This stuff is going to be powerful. I cannot wait for it. I don't know of anybody doing this stuff already. I'm sure people already are, but this is where I want to go with this. And I cannot freaking wait. So recovery elevator. It all starts from the inside out. I love you guys. We can do this. <laughs> <laughs>